What do you call that noise? Hello there, I'm Mark Fisher, and this is What Do You Call That Noise, the XDC podcast. Today, we're continuing the discussion from two episodes ago about references in XDC songs that might need some explanation for those living further afield. In the first Oranges and Ladybirds episode, we talked a lot about the influence of British nursery rhymes on XDC songs. Peter Mills remembered the influence of school. The playground is like the big square world. I talked about the nursery rhyme, Oranges and Lemons. When you hear orange and lemon, raincoats roll and tumble, you're programmed to hear oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clemens. That's the thing that sort of goes into your head and then Andy takes it off to raincoats and roll and tumble. Belinda Blanchard talked about the gruesomeness of many nursery rhymes. To hear the original reasoning and the original um, original source then, um, makes you realise just how horrific it all was. <laughs> From the United States, Sandy LeFew talked about her fascination with British culture. Um, I think it all started probably with the first British invasion. And um, we got plenty of Anglophiles here in this country to enjoy their music. And that is a sentiment echoed by Amy Parkinson. For me... Brits are just exotic anyway. Then, of course, we had the wonderful Sarah Palmer from Fascine giving us her renditions of nursery rhymes, including Oranges and Lemons. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St. Clemens. You owe me five farthings, say the bells of St. Martin. When will you pay me, say the bells of O'Bailey. When I grow rich, say the bells of Shoreditch. And when will that be, said the bells of Shepney? Oh, I do not know, says the great Bellippo. Thanks again to Sarah for that. Also in that episode, Donna Reese provided our monthly recommendation of the perfect drink to go with the perfect song. So it seems only right that she should give us another perfect pairing this time. My name's Donna Reese, and I'm going to suggest to go with the song Grass, a bottle of really cheap cider and two straws. Thank you, Donna. I think the uh, straw is essential for that uh, particular combination. A quick thank you also to the generous supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. They include Pink Things, Humble Daisies and Knights in Shining Karma. And the Knights in Shining Karma will get a name check at the end of this episode. If you'd like to keep the podcast free of ads and packed with XDC goodness, please head to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. We got lots of interesting feedback from the first episode. For example, uh, when I was talking about uh, the phrase Jack and Jillian years ago, which is from uh, We're All Light, and that was a reference to the nursery rhyme Jack and Jill, which sounds a little bit like this. 
Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. Thank you, Lottie Fisher. Uh, that uh, prompted me to give a list of uses of the name Jack, which included Jack in the Box and Jack O'Lantern. Mark Thomas got in touch to add to that list, pointing out that not only does the phrase give us Lumber Jack, but also Lumber Jill a term new to me, and that led me to finding out about the Women's Timber Corps, part of the UK war effort involving thousands of lumber gills working in the UK's forests. Then James Dignan said he thought, and I'm quoting, the biggest nursery rhyme influence was on Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, and he said the whole chorus is based on a nursery rhyme, and he reckoned it went right back to early songs like Scissorman, which is another song we mentioned in the last episode in relation to uh, Struvel Peter. James is absolutely right. If you think about the form of shilling for the fellow who brings the sheep in, shilling for the fellow who milks the herd, it's a very similar pattern to one for my master, one for my dame in Bar Bar Black Sheep. So James also talked about a nursery rhyme that I didn't know, which goes, I've got sixpence, a jolly jolly sixpence, tuppence to spend and tuppence to lend and tuppence to take home for my wife. And when I looked into that one, pretty much the first result to come up on Google was from Wiltshire Council and a page about Wiltshire community history. It gives the words to a folk song that it calls Jolly Shilling, which it says comes from Oxfordshire, although it was popular almost everywhere. And it includes several verses before the one that James uh, quoted about the sixpence. And the first verse brings us even closer to Love on a Farm Boy's Wages. It goes like this. I have a jolly shilling, a lovely jolly shilling. I love my jolly shilling as I do love my life. I have a penny for to spend, another for to lend, and a jolly, jolly tenpence to carry home to my wife. And as the song, it's very funny, as the song goes on, the amount of money involved gets lower. So by the last line, he has nothing to carry home to my own dearest wife. And then finally, Simon Slatome recalled hearing Andy Partridge in a 1989 interview with Johnny Walker saying that they called the album Oranges and Lemons precisely because of that timeless, eternal nursery rhyme quality. He said Andy was hoping some of his songs might pass into the common consciousness like Yellow Submarine had, divorced from its origins as a Beatles song and turning up on a kid's TV uh, show as part of a fun thing about the color yellow and and persist in some form down the ages. Simon also drew my attention to the passage in Neville Farmer's Song Stories book that says oranges and lemons had a provisional title, Songs of Sixpence. Now, sing a song of sixpence is a nursery rhyme that could go back to the time of Henry VIII. People don't really know, but there's a theory that it could go right back to uh, Henry VIII, who is a 16th century candidate for being the king in his counting house. Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was open, the birds began to sing. Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? The king is in his counting house, counting out his money. The queen was in the parlour, eating bread and honey. The maid was in the garden, hanging out the clothes. When down came a blackbird and pecked off her nose. Thank you, Lottie Fisher, for that. In Song Stories, Andy says, 
I like nursery rhymes, but because the album was coming out so shiny and fluorescent and so sleek and fast, the title Oranges and Lemons seemed about right. In LA, they are the colours you see everywhere. This bold colour comes off the music and it fitted the criteria of a nursery rhyme title. So let's continue with the discussion between me, Belinda Blanchard, Peter Mills, Sandy LeFew and Amy Parkinson. What do you call that noise? Um, Belinda, I think it's your turn to talk, talk. Your turn to tell us everything about London. London, London appears quite a lot in uh, for for a band that don't come from London. London does appear quite a lot in XTC songs, does it not? Yes. Good. This this is the shortest section of the program. We're now going to move on. <laughs> um, I think it's an example of um, exhibiting a, a love hate relationship. Do you think? Yeah. In my limited experience, the further away from London you live, the more they hate us. <laughs> um, my cousins in Wales hate us. I mean, they wouldn't they they wouldn't even cross the bridge into England if they could possibly help it. So, and I'm speaking in humongous generalizations here. Um, there is a very good reason to um, feel a bit annoyed about London in that we get most of the news, we get most of the money, but there are eight and a half million people living here, but it, it, there's a hell of a lot more people that don't, but we get all the press. <laughs> um, so when anyone goes abroad who comes from the UK, especially America, they'll say, oh, what part do, do you live in London? You know, as if that's if, if you don't come from London, don't bother talking to me because we're not interested. Um, so even if you live sort of 100 miles away, you can afford to say near London. Because 100 miles away from Dallas is still near Dallas as far as anyone else. So it's the same here. I mean, I, I'm not speaking for XTC. I, I, I don't. I would merely suggest that there is a love-hate relationship and um, it, it does tend to come across and I'm not going to give you a million examples because right now my head has got beer in it and I can't think of any. <laughs> well, you can, give us, you can give us one example because of where you live. You live in Peckham and the phrase Peckham Rose is, is used in River of Orchids. And that's not something that now, anybody, I don't think, nor anybody anywhere in the UK would understand. There, I did, a bit of, I did a bit of research on the Peckham Rose. Now, I live in Peckham and... I'd never heard of the Rose before, so um, or Peckham Rose, and when I just assume he made made it up. My interpretation of it is that Peckham is part of the southeast London, close to the centre of London, so it's a very heavily built up area. And although people don't realise it, when they think of Peckham, they think you know it's just people and buildings. Well, there's an awful lot of of um, green surrounding here. Well, the idea that Peckham might get so green if you got rid of cars that roses could appear, um, I think you know that there's that nice idea that you know uh, our own our own named flora and fauna could appear because they you know there's no cars or anything. It is quite rather lovely. So I like to think that that's what he meant. 
but no. Um, Todd did an interview with him in 2008 where he mentioned about the Peckham Rose, and apparently it came from a Svankmeyer short film, and he's talking about Peckham Rose um, matches, matchsticks. There were Peckham Rose matchsticks, and actually I saw a box of them for sale from a, a rare, some odd, weird company um, online. So that's where it came from. So there's also a lot of references to matches, but the Peckham Rose was really, it touched me. So I became Peckham <laughs> Rose in a few things. In fact, I was thinking of changing my name to Peckham Rose in, in Facebook, but you can't do that. Um <laughs> so it meant quite a lot to me because my my grandmum's rose so that's why um i didn't know that about the, the peckham rose or the the jan uh, Svankmeyer film I, th- I think that's brilliant i'd just taken it like you belinda to mean you know like like another england the transformation that might be possible you know yeah. to to a to a sort of an inner city place if we just went about things differently yeah, but Frank Meyer's films were were. I mean, he did a famous adaptation of um, Alice in Wonderland, so he did a lot of that stuff we're talking about. You know, taking um, well-known stories and children's stories and sort of bringing the creepiness out a bit. Okay. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. So, however much we try to move away from nursery rhymes, we keep on getting pulled back. <laughs> ah, well, it's the motherload. I'm beginning to think it's the motherload. <laughs> The Partridgean Motherload. Uh, any more questions from Amy and Sandy there? Yeah, go for it. See what we got. I think I know what Piccadilly Circus is. Uh, I just wanted to say that one of my very favorite Andy lyrics is I heard the dandelions roar in Piccadilly Circus. It's just so clever and brilliant. Well, that's another example of the idea of, you know, Piccadilly Circus, like mm-hmm. um, hugely, you know, it's a fake area you know there is nothing natural there at all so the idea of everything being green again um and dandelions being there you know the fact is that an eighth of a mile away from piccadilly circus is a little square called golden square you will find dandelions there but let's not ruin the image (laughs) (laughs) if you know exactly where to look yeah (laughs) <laughs> well actually as we as we're talking about nature maybe that was a good and rather clumsy segue into harvest festival and and peter has, yeah. has lots um, of thoughts about harvest festival i mean the, the, in a way the, there are kind of two if we're thinking about historically there are two sorts of ways of thinking about harvest festival um there's the one which gets specifically sort of referenced in the song um which is a school one. Uh, I, I'm thinking it was it's a school, and in fact, the the it, it's a bit weird actually. The the first sounds that you hear on uh, Harvest Festival on on uh, Apple Venus Volume One to me are some of the most evocative on oh, on any XTC yes. record. The chairs scraping and the shuffling oh. of the feet. And I'm just thinking straight away, you know, I'm, I'm, they had me at the scraping of the chairs. <laughs> you know, I'm yes. absolutely there. And yes. I don't know whose idea that was, but it was absolutely inspired because straight away, you know, this place. Um, 
And when when I was a kid, the Harvest Festival was was precisely that thing, you know, t- tins of peaches that you'd take up to the front, and it was sort of distribution of of um, groceries, I suppose, food goods uh, that would be then given to you know, kind of the deserving and and um, the the needy. But it had its sort of roots in a, a specific ceremony, which was concocted by the Church of England in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> hey. but, but, before, but before that, of course, which culture, which society has not given thanks when the harvest is in? You could look at any culture, anywhere, anytime, you know, as far back as you want to go. Check the cave paintings. There'll be like celebrations of, you know, the harvest coming in. So it's a very human thing to do, you know. Oh, thank God, you know, we've got food to last the winter. Um, Not good. But they, yeah, indeed. But the the harvest festival as as a thing, which you know is the 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 school one that we kind of that is evoked by the the track. Actually, it's kind of the first half, isn't it? I'll come on to that in a minute. Was was started in I think it was eighteen forty three by a very interesting uh, churchman, the Reverend Robert Stephen Hawker. Now I don't know if you have any listeners in Cornwall, uh, Mark. Um, I'm sure we you have do. A global reach, Peter. A global reach, indeed. Okay. Well, this is this is a shout out to all the the uh, the uh, the people of Cornwall. Um, it's much further west, of course, than Wiltshire and Swindon. Oh, they hate Londoners even more. Oh, do more. they? Yeah, I suppose they would, wouldn't they? Being that 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 much further away. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, Robert Stephen Hawker, and he was a very interesting man. He was a cleric. He was the vicar of uh, Morwenstow, which is North Cornwall, actually. And he was, in his own little way, I suppose, um, he was quite a rebellious figure, and introduced lots of sort of Thanksgiving hymns, actually, into the Church of England's repertoire, if we can call it that. So things like "All Things Bright and Beautiful." And uh, we we plough the fields and scatter. Drawing, it was quite green, I suppose you could call him uh, um, a quite a sort of a green cleric, and was very sort of in tune with the the rhythm of the seasons, you know. And that's something we get, isn't it, from from XTC? There's a, a se- you know a sense of life outdoors. I always think, obviously on on skylarking, but plenty of other places too. So we get you know the season cycle. And so, you know, the Harvest Festival obviously is to do with um, the end of summer and the sort of the onset of autumn and winter. And anyway, Hawker, Robert Hawker, started the modern idea of uh, the Harvest Festival, sort of dress the church in sort of uh, flowers and put bread and, you know, all, all the sort of the, the, the good things, if I can use that phrase, that had been gathered in and started this service, which was a kind of Thanksgiving, really, for, uh, you know, the bounty of the earth and the sea and obviously Mornstow is right by the sea. Well, I should just say also as well, he had a, he had a hut. So you can go to Hawker's Hut, which is now a National Trust property. Well, you can't go anywhere at the moment, actually, in the UK. But when we can, you can go and visit Hawker's Hut, which is high on a cliff outside uh, Mornstow. Uh, and he used to sit there and smoke his pipe and ruminate and, um, you know, write his sermons and whatever. And supposedly it was sitting in Hawker's hut that uh, he came up with this idea um, for uh, the Harvest Festival, a sort of Thanksgiving festival for, um, you know, the, 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 the bounty of the sea 
and of uh, the earth. And it kind of caught on because there was a spectacle, you know, like the children would bring stuff in. It wouldn't be tin goods, obviously, then. It would be sort of stuff that people had actually made uh, and grown. And there was a repertoire that went with it. So it was quite portable. So there was this, you know, visually appealing thing, got the kids of the parish involved. There was this bunch of songs that went with it. And, um, yeah, it went viral in the Victorian (laughs) um, Church of England. Um, But then by the time, you know, uh, I guess the post-war generation were growing up, it had become somewhat secularised, well, in fact, fairly secularised, and was was in school, actually. It was, it was something that would happen in school, which brings us back to the song. And that's that's why you've got that sound at the beginning and, you know, the, won- the wonky school piano that everybody remembers. Um, and also that sort of exchange of looks between the narrator and, you know, the girl who's gone up to put her tin of peaches you know, on the table at the front. But then an interesting thing happens, doesn't it, in the song, that, the, the, you know, the, the kind of, uh, what should we say, the, the time of ripeness that is being celebrated through, you know, the provision of goods gets translated into a personal one, doesn't it? And is sort of that exchange moment that they have that, that seems to last for years and years and years and then it goes off into a more personal thing with the invitation to the wedding which first time i heard it i thought oh, that's taken an unusual taking an unusual twist now but it really links in with that whole sort of you know i'm, res- I'm trying to resist the, the phrase circle of life here i'm trying to think of another you <laughs> failed. Way of saying it. You, failed. But, you know that 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 sort of exchange that that you know <laughs> the planting the, the 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 rising the harvesting the delivery and then it starts all over again the season cycle well then andy goes on to talk in his lyrics he says but the exams and crops all failed yeah 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 yeah, brilliant she obviously goes on to the next form of school or level or something and yeah that's kind of a a sad letdown in that song i sort of caught that it's a lovely line isn't it it is yeah in yeah. the sense of the divergent pathways as well right they just have right. that moment of togetherness which seems to endure but also the reality is this other thing right so, and he always kind of seems seems to paint himself as um you know somebody who got left behind or uh, i don't know you know somebody who's of a certain group or class that that just doesn't go on yeah but that's why for so many of us we loved it because we associated totally with it. And I totally agree with you, Peter, the beginning when you hear those chairs and the footsteps. I am that sad little 10-year-old. I had to go to a boarding school for delicate children. Um, It was the worst because we'd come back from the school holidays and in my case and a few other kids' cases, the only tins we brought were the ones that um, my mum sort of found at the back of the larder, larder, mind you, um, with a Dubai date mm. close to, you know, <laughs> or whenever. Um, you know, eat by last week. Oh, that'll do, love, give them that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you were so embarrassed. <laughs> Um, yeah, that that is just <laughs> such a, a beautiful song. That makes me weep for for all the same reasons. Yeah, it is. It is so yeah. beautiful. It really gets me every time. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And just that sense of the participation in a ritual, 
you know, which yeah. has been going on for years and years and years and right. years. And now it's your I'm turn. Shocked, I'm shocked, Peter, though, to realise that the ritual isn't actually that old. When I was doing it in the in the whenever the 1970s, yeah. it was only it was only 100 and whatever 20 years old or something. Yeah, yeah, true, true. But as I say, it, it, that that was just they just kind of co-opted what you know. As I say, the human impulse is anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, to mm-hmm. be grateful that everything's in and we're going to be all right. And then, in American terms, we're kind of talking about Thanksgiving, but it's not the it's not the same. In the, it is, there's no there's no meal involved. There's, it's just a ritual. I, I only associate it with school. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe Church of yeah. England did things, mm-hmm. but but yeah, it, I, it's a school thing that I associate it with. Is it uh, Amy? Is it something that you do? You just do you just know what a harvest festival is, or is it is it exotic in the way that we're talking about? It's exotic in the way you're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we certainly we certainly have Thanksgiving, um, but that sounds like it's different than what you're referencing. What do you call that noise? Shall I talk about new towns? Yeah. I, I thought New Towns had a sort of context which, which well, you can tell me whether it has a, a similarity in, in the United States as well, but it's to do with the specific geography and, and history of, of the United Kingdom, uh, particularly after the war. A lot of big cities like, such as London and, and Liverpool and, and Glasgow had been uh, bombed, and Coventry, for example, a huge example of, 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 of cities that have been bombed and, and destroyed in the war, uh, coupled with the, uh, a lot of dense inner city housing, which was a very low standard. These, these were slums which really needed to be knocked down. And, and the solution to this was to build new towns. And new towns were typically built on the periphery of a city or sometimes maybe out in the country on, as a little island on its own or in some, you know, there'd be some village that would suddenly become uh, a, a major conurbation. And uh, there, were, there were big waves of these uh, new towns that were built in the 1940s and the 1960s. If we come to XTC, the Penn Hill Estate was built on farmhouse to, uh, farmland to house the overspill from, from London. And work began there in 1952, and the estate was still being built when Andy's family moved there. So by 1965, there were more than 2,000 houses in Penn Hill. So we're talking about primarily residential areas, and this can cause problems because although many people aspired to moving in new towns because they'd lived in such grotty, uh, damp and decaying housing in, in, in the inner cities. And here was the opportunity of fresh air and views and, and, and maybe the opportunity to get closer to the countryside and so on. There was also the downside, which is that they were typically uh, not connected with places of work, maybe not complex, not designed very well so that you could easily get to the shops. And so it sort of challenged communities and so on. And so and and so there 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 are also problems. And so when we get Newtown Animal is in terms of lyrics is not a very long song. But when we get Andrew uh, Andy Partridge talking about about uh, a Newtown Animal in a furnished cage, it's this idea that of of sort of comfort. You've got this; it's furnished, but it's also a cage, so you feel trapped by it. And and I think Andy was mm-hmm. thinking of of all Newtowns uh, everywhere when 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 um, he he thought of that. Um, if we stick on the urban theme, Belinda is a keen motorcyclist and might be able to tell us one or two things about roundabouts. I love roundabouts. The reason I love roundabouts is because, A, they don't waste electricity like traffic lights do. Um, B, if you, when you approach a roundabout, if there's no one coming, 
you can continue on your way. Whereas at a traffic light, legally, you should stay at the red until it turns green, even if there's no one there. So I can't think of a, you know, there is no more to it than that. That's a perfect reason why there should be roundabouts. Now, the first modern version of a roundabout was opened in 1899 in Germany. And um, in fact, there were roundabouts in America, in San Jose, um, before they were uh, introduced to, to, to the UK, unbelievably. Um, and the first one in the UK was in Letchworth Garden City. Now, I thought that Letchworth was a, um, an, a new town, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm wrong. Anyway, um, so that's why I like roundabouts. Now, we're used to them in this country, and they do work. You give way to the traffic from your right, or if you're in America, on your left. And you enter the roundabout when it's free to do so, get to the left or in America, the right hand side to exit the roundabout. Nothing could be simpler. But the rise of the amount of cyclists, certainly in London, has meant that some very busy roundabouts have been reimagined to be more friendlier to cyclists because they can be a bit dangerous. For, the very busy ones can be dangerous for cyclists. Um, in America, uh, okay, I haven't been to all of America. I've been to quite a bit of it. Um, they are they don't like roundabouts. They don't understand the theory of them. Even there are some. I've been around a few in, in the States and in Canada. But on the whole, Americans aren't keen on the idea. What the Americans do better is they have a four-way stoplight or a three-way stoplight, and it's always flashing on or off. So you just turn up to it, and like a roundabout, you take your turn. But, of course, um, that doesn't always work. But a roundabout is egalitarian. It, it's no matter if you're really in, unless you're a police car with your lights flashing or ambulance or, or um, the other one, ambulance for a fire engine that's it um you have got the right of way when it, there is nothing coming from the right or in america the left the architect john mclaren actually designed one of the first american roundabouts for both um autos and streetcars trams in as i said in, in san jose um and the first British circular junction, also known as circular junction, was built in Letchworth Garden City in nineteen in nineteen oh nine. So um, the one in Swindon that is the five way one, I don't think I've actually. I suppose, I don't know if I've done it. I'm sure it was the sort. It would be the sort of thing I've done on a. I would remember if I'd done on a motorcycle, but I don't think I have. Um, what I don't like about that one is that it would be quite dangerous for cyclists and two two powered two wheelers, motorcyclists and uh, mopeds, if you weren't absolutely sure where you were going, because it's so confusing to people that aren't used to it. Um, that you would be looking at the signs and not the road. 
but for normal types roundabout that are only a circular thing and you go on and you go off, you go on and you go off, you go on and you go off. Dead simple. That's all I have to say about roundabouts. What else do you want to know? Well, I just wanted to ask something about roundabouts. Uh, We don't have many of them here. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have teeny tiny ones that are in neighborhoods. Um, Yeah, I I absolutely get the egalitarian nature of and the efficiency, the highly efficient way that they should work. Um, my question to you is, are you, I mean, do you, are you all pretty good about using your turn signals and letting people know what you plan to do, what turn you plan to make? Because in the little roundabouts oh God, no. here, nobody uses their turn signal. And so you sit there waiting when somebody's coming in or two people are in and mm. they're getting off before you could get in, but they don't signal it. So they you don't wait bother. and then they, t- they don't bother. So yeah. that takes away all the efficiency. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I totally, um, the, the thing is also you can be, you can be um, indicating left because you want to take the next left turn and then you realize no hang on I didn't want that one I want the next one um but on the bigger abouts and Hyde Park Corner was possibly the most sort of um not famous but Hyde Park Corner is a massive bloody circle um in in the center of London it's huge and um people couldn't be trusted so they retained the one-way circle of it but threw in round, um, traffic lights to control us because we could be trusted. <laughs> um, so, uh, and and in a couple of well-known squares, roundabout uh, one-way squares then, or, or roundabout areas in London, they've actually closed off the sections. So it's two ways um, uh, controlled by traffic lights. You're absolutely right. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it, it can be a nightmare for people that aren't using the indicators or are going slowly. But when it works, there's nothing like it. I, I would advocate them, especially as you say, in um, more back streets or small towns or whatever. There is a, we were talking about new towns earlier. Milton Keynes is such one new town. Um, that was built in, I believe, 1948-49. I cannot remember for sure. It was famous for having only roundabouts. Cumbernauld outside Glasgow is, is is like that. It's just, and you can, if you're driving, it's just really, really difficult to work out where you are because everything looks the same because it's all been designed the same and built at the same time. Right, I would imagine. And another thing about roundabouts, they only work really well and Americans are really good at this. If there are signposts at every at the entrance to each, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, on the side of every entrance to it, um, otherwise you haven't got a damn clue. <laughs> well, I've got GPS now, and that's like what I consider my superpower because I'm terrible with directions and absolutely <laughs> terrible with left and right and all of that. Uh-huh. Although I do use my turn signals. Um, But I was going to say, I've seen time-lapse footage of the magic roundabout at night, lit up at night, 
And it's actually mesmerizing. And it's very beautiful to watch the cars going into and going out. But I, I know that I would yeah. be the one to take all of that off the rails. I'm sure I would be the car that, that just caused a 12-car <laughs> collision. I consider myself a, a confident, competent motorcyclist. But I'd be a little anxious. Um, but at the same time, when some car drivers see a motorcyclist they might be a little bit more cautious for us but not all of them um when it comes down to it, it you just got to do your best and hope for mm-hmm. the best but i i still maintain my love of my love of roundabouts sure. and far too especially in london yeah far too many um traffic light signals are put up at junctions when they could have put roundabout and it it's a huge thing for me we're starting to see more and more roundabouts in our area and um this might be a, a something that speaks to the egalitarian nature of the roundabout but my son always says it's all about the yield that's a nice way of putting it but don't you have to be able to gauge the speed at which people are coming you know <laughs> i'm not real good at that my depth yeah. perception is not very good And sometimes I'm like, I'm going to go for it. And I start to pull out and somebody's coming a lot faster than they look like they were coming straight on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking about Colin writing that song in 1982 and he could have just called it roundabout or, but he's specifically called it English roundabouts. And I wonder whether he was making these same sort of observations that Belinda is making and, and, and Amy and Sandra, the sort of uh, realizing having traveled around the world uh, on tour he must have observed that that it was a, a, a more, or you know, it, they existed less in other places. Yeah, that it, it's not a universal thing, is it? It's it's. Um, I mean, the it, it's interesting. We we're talking about the the, the magic roundabout, the famous uh, multiple roundabout in Swindon. Um, when when we were down there for the the convention and then the TC and I gigs. You know, it was obligatory, whether you needed to or not, to like, you know, ride the rapids of of the, <laughs> you know, the roundabout, and it was terrifying. I was thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna smash this car up here. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I don't know where terrifying. to stop or where to go. So it has that sort of. It's almost like you know the the cogs in a machine, and you get sort of propelled through it, and then pow, you're out the other end, and you're headed for Stroud or something without meaning to. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, it's also interesting, um, we were talking about Liverpool earlier on, you know, I was at the University of Liverpool and the Hall of Residence I was in was actually at the end of Penny Lane. So you came out the front door and Penny Lane was there straight ahead of you. Um, I never quite got used to it being there, but it it did sort of. Um, But it it strikes me there's something like, you know, the big roundabout, (laughs) the roundabout festival in Swindon. For XTC nuts like we are, is a bit like Penny Lane, isn't it? You think? I mean, I know he didn't strictly write it about it, it that, is. but that's you know that's that's the association that's sort of arisen. So it's like a must do. That's I guess that's what yeah. I'm saying. I can see that. Well, let me toss this out there. I just wanted to say that you know the the distinction of an English roundabout. I wonder if it might have something more to do with the English and how they drive. I know growing up in the South, especially growing up in the rural South, um, no one ever used their horn. It was considered extremely rude. Like, unless you want to save somebody's life or a deer's life or your neighbor's St. Bernard's life, you do not honk your horn. And I have memories of 
coming up to a four-way stop, uh, not lights, just stop signs. And in the South, in the deep South, and someone saying, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go, no, it's okay. I insist you go. And it, and it makes me, it makes me laugh because, um, but I mean, I, I imagine in more urban environments, that's not so much a consideration, but I just wonder if the English in general are uh, maybe more sensitive to uh, being polite in, 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 y- oh, in no. yielding or no. So that's just like not even on the table. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not going to even talk for all of London here. No. Um, but of course, in an awful lot of uh, rural areas, um, of course they will, but certainly not in, um, in London. I also read London's got its own style of driving though, hasn't it? I think I think London has its own it is a law unto itself in that yeah, sense. It's called go for it. Um I <laughs> also just read <laughs> that yeah, half and, and as a motorcyclist I rule, um, as half of all the world's roundabouts are in France. That's mm-hmm. hard to believe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um but uh you know, we're talking about standards of driving and that can get a little boring. But um, that's why I like roundabouts, because they're just so fair. And you have to pay attention more. Should we do a couple of other references? There's still quite a long list of things that we haven't mentioned, but I could just mention, because I think people would be intrigued, Ermine Street from Chalk Hills and Children. Uh, Ermine Street isn't something that everybody in, in the UK would know about, but it, it is an old Roman road. And there are, this is something I discovered. Uh, it, there are two Ermine Streets. One of them is spelt with an E, uh, E-R-M-I-N-E. Uh, Mine Street, and uh, that goes from London right the way up the, the to, to the to York or somewhere like that. But Ermine Street without an E is is uh, in the passes past Swindon. In fact, passes very very close to where Andy grew up in in Penn Hill in the northeast of Swindon, and and it goes between Gloucester and Cirencester. So it's an old Roman road, uh, uh, making the connections, I suppose, to between London and and Wales. It would be part of that. Uh, that particular route yeah and that there you've got the secret the secret sort of uh, the secret identity of place going on there again haven't you yeah i think so yeah because that that road that go and again it's it reminds me of harvest festival and what you were saying peter that that sense of a long history and this this land has been populated since roman times and just that and being and a song chalkers and children about being rooted in in the rooted by children but also rooted by the chalk hills it's rooted you know that's it's it's that road there that it's very very specific isn't it um there's another reference which would have meant nothing to me had i not looked it up but aunt sally which appears in the the wheel and the main pole Uh, and this is curious because it's a game it's a pub game it's a game that's played played outside in outdoor door pubs uh, and maybe fairgrounds and so on in the Oxfordshire area. It's very, very particular. Oxfordshire and neighbouring counties. And the idea is this uh, traditional idea. Long ago, the idea would be that there would be a bust of an old woman who would who would be Aunt Sally or, the, or, or her head, and she'd be smoking a pipe, a clay pipe. And the idea is that you would have to throw batons or sticks at uh, at Aunt Sally with the aim of breaking the clay pipe. And, that, and, that, and, that's, and that's the game. Um, now... The way it's done is there's a, a, a spike stuck in the ground and uh, a, a sort of 
it looks like a, a wooden doll that's sort of put on the on the balanced on the top of this, and you throw your sticks to try and knock off the doll off this spike. But it goes way back to the 17th century, that one. Um, so I've got the seed. If you've got the valley, I've got the big stick. If you've got, uh, if you've Aunt Sally's head. So that's that one. Peter wanted to say something about bungalow. Okay. Well, all right then. Um, a bit like we're saying about Harvest Festival, you know, that the, um, the bungalow, the single floor dwelling. Peter, I was watching a property program the other day and it described it was calling this thing a bungalow and actually it had a two floors. Now, I grew up in a bungalow. I know a bungalow has one floor. <laughs> yeah. It's a quite a very That's specific a defining thing. feature, one would think. My, my parents' house was, um, oh my goodness, it was, a, it was a phrase, something bungalow, um, because in the loft it, they'd built another floor. There was there was a, it was a pitched roof, so they built another floor. A mutant bungalow. So like a high, a sort of a hybrid. Um, I suppose, but I'm trying to think of the the mutant bungalow. But it was something I can't remember the name. So the the, the term again is a 19th century term, and apparently the first house to be classified as a bungalow in uh, in the UK in England. Uh, anyway, was in uh, 1869, and um, there were there were two of them, and they were built at Westgate on Sea, which is in Kent, North Kent, uh, so a seaside resort. And um, for a long time, and possibly even still, they're associated with the coast or retirement to the coast, or as I suppose we could say, downsizing or something like that. Um, a kind of uh, reduction in activity, um, not just a reduction in, you know, climbing from one floor to, to the next, but like it's almost like the bungalow was a kind of state of mind. There was, there was just enough room and it would be close to the sea or close to a beauty spot. And John Betjeman, the, the, the great English poet and poet laureate he was actually, who, as you'll know, if you have a look at uh, Mark's second book, What Do You Call That Noise?, um, there's a piece in there on uh, John Betjeman and Colin Moulding, actually, and their sort of uh, interest in ordinary life, uh, quote unquote, ordinary life. Um, and that's where there's some there's some stuff in there about uh, about bungalow. And Betjeman was unusual in that he quite liked he quite liked bungalows. The term bungaloid came to be used as a pejorative for kind of like a rash of development you know, by the seaside or at a beauty spot that kind of spoilt it somehow. So it became like a sort of a critical term. But in specifically the XTC context, there is a sort of an autobiographical one. I mean, I remember when we were at the uh, TC&I gigs in um, October and November, wasn't it, of 2018, Fan fabulously, Colin sang Bungalow every night. Oh, yeah. And he prefaced it with the story about his own parents, um, how their dream was to retire to uh, a bungalow near Weymouth, which is uh, a beautiful town, actually, in Dorset, which is kind of in Hardy country, actually, just connecting up with what I was talking about earlier. Her, Thomas Hardy's uh, sort of invented county of Wessex. Uh, was kind of Dorset plus, you know, extra bits. 
and Weymouth. It's called Budmouth in those books, if, you, if anybody knows those books. Anyway, just down the coast from uh, Weymouth, there was a big development of, of bungalows, and that was uh, apparently, according to what Colin said at these shows, was where his parents dreamed of sort of retiring. So the idea of the bungalow became sort of charmed and associated with a life of ease and a life of rest and, you know, the nine to five is over and, you know, all the arduous stuff about life is associated with the town and, you know, a, a townhouse, where the, whereas the bungalow is associated with, you know, relaxation. And you can hear that in the lyrics, can't you? Climbing rows, time to spare. It's sort of... Uh, a kind of benign emptiness, if you like, that it kind of represented. And the the, the bungalow is, is you know, the, the one-storey house, as I say, isn't unique to this idea, but it has, in the English sense, it has a whole set of associations with certain types of seaside resort being occupied by, occupied by people of a certain age and a certain way of life being lived within the four walls. So I, I think that's that's why it it's, it fits into this sort of this thing we're talking about of sort of particularly uh, English way of being, which isn't necessarily obvious just from looking at the you know the structure, just looking at the building from outside. What you just said about uh, the bungalows being in Westgate, my I grew up in Margate just down the road, and my parents moved to a bungalow in Westgate. Um, it was called a chalet bungalow, which meant that there was another area up, upstairs um, and the joke about bunging a low roof on it um, is is pretty well known. <laughs> Why is it called a bungalow? Because we bunged a low roof on it. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I hadn't known that about um, those particular areas um, in, in Westgate of, because they're all over the uh, as you say, coastal areas. Um, and I like the idea, obviously, that people, older people who maybe as they get older, they won't be able to walk so fast so they can't walk up the stairs. Um, it's, it, it does make sense, but you never want to be those types of people. <laughs> or at least I don't want to be. And it's funny, isn't it? Because in the in the song, it's it's a dream, it's an aspiration. I was I felt. I mean, Colin said that his parents never actually made it; they never did that thing. But it was always that sort of dream, you know, that sort of the far pavilions, you know, the 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 celestial city on the hill. That was the thing that they were working and striving and saving for. Yeah, somehow it was denied them in the end and and i think part of the power of the song is that as ambitions go it's actually very very modest it's a very humble ambition to have this it's it's they're not saying i want to live mm -hmm. in a castle or a mansion mm -hmm. or what they just want a bungalow and and mm -hmm. you know the knowledge that they never found it which is sort of additional to the song but you know is is even more poignant they yeah. didn't find, I, like, I found this... that really moving actually when, when yeah. he, he prefaced the song with that little little story I, th I thought we should talk about bungalows because property is just such a different thing from country to country. And, and in, Amer in North America, for example, there is just so much space that, you know, I often find myself watching, uh, pro you know, programs about urban deprivation in America and all these people are sort of swanning around in vast living rooms. And I'm thinking, that doesn't, you call that deprived. <laughs> but it's because, you know, I'm not saying I'm, yeah, they're, they're, they're right. being, uh, it's just because of my perspective, you know, things are much smaller in the UK than they are uh, uh, over there. So, so I thought, well, 
do you even would anybody even understand what a what a bungalow signified yeah it's it's just you've just reminded me of something actually uh mark which isn't really well i suppose it is related um when we were in uh we had a holiday in australia which is just something that i had actually been looking that was an aspiration since i was a kid we finally got there a few years ago and my my daughter really liked she still likes them but she really liked them then and an australian band called five seconds of summer i don't know if anybody knows their name Five sauce, they also get called. Anyway, the the uh, the little the the, the sort of them. pub where they used to do their first gigs uh, was in a suburb of Sydney, which we had to get a train out to. So she said, "Oh, let's go and see, it. let's go and see it." So we went and caught the train out to the nearest station, and then she had this map, which of course she got off the internet to find our way to this this place. But what amazed me that between the uh, the the railway station. And where this pub was, was just street after street after street of bungalows. Now I'm thinking, you know, in, in Australia, you'd think, well, you, th- there's unlimited space. Why would you crowd everybody in into these, these bungalows? But, I mean, I'm guessing it's, it's partly because uh, although, you know, Australia is vast, there's only small bits that you can actually live in. So it was in, and they were all sort of uh, 19th century, these things. So um, I was thinking, well, it's interesting that they've brought the architectural style with them, um, you know, from from the UK and from Europe, um, and they've sort of replicated it in the new world. So I just found that very interesting. I didn't expect that at all. I expected, like you were saying, Mark, you know, everybody would have, like, you know, the outback, you know, <laughs> to, to set to set up in. Yeah, they were all sort of crammed in in these these uh, extraordinarily sort of tight streets of bungalows. We've got millions and millions of references that we that we could still get through, but I suggest that we do that some other time because otherwise uh, this is going to be a, a spin-off series of itself. Like a Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, it's going to be a triple album at least. Um, but I would like to hear from Amy and Sandy as our as our. Um, as our pupils <laughs> in this um, educated <laughs> educational uh, exercise to, to, to see whether this has been uh, stuff you already know or has it been revelatory to you? Uh, Amy, maybe you could kick off. Oh, I think there have been some very deep takes on a lot of uh, things that I didn't know anything about. I think I've learned a lot. It's good stuff. <laughs> You've come out a better person. As I a am. I'm a better person in all ways. <laughs> Sandy, as an, as, a, as an Anglophile, uh, how about you? Yeah, as an Anglophile and uh, amateur historian, I could probably talk for hours about this stuff, but I did learn some new things. So that's always interesting, too. I appreciate it. Well, we'll have to have you back. It's been great to have you here. Um, and uh, 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 so I think I just will thank us now because otherwise we will go on for several several more years. But it, I've been fascinated by all the conversations. So thank you very much to Belinda and Peter for all the, the work they put into this because there's fa- fantastic stuff uh, everybody's been uncovering and really fantastic insights. Uh, we'll be back for more XDC's fun. But uh, in the meantime, thank you, Amy, Sandy, Belinda and Peter. This has been what do you call that noise? The XCC podcast. We'll see you again. Bye. What do you call that noise?
you can read Belinda on the subject of Dear God in the XDC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls, which is also where you'll find Peter on the subject of Ladybird. Peter also writes about the songs of Colin Moulding in What Do You Call That Noise, an XDC discovery book. And you can get both of those books from xdclimelight.com. A massive thank you to Sarah Palmer and Lottie Fisher for providing the musical illustrations in both these episodes. And you can catch up with Sarah's band Fascine at fascine.com. And you can enjoy Lottie Lottie's artwork at instagram.com forward slash Lottie Fisher. And Lottie is spelt L-O-T-T-E. And thanks also to Lottie for providing the artwork for these two episodes. Thanks as well to Donna Reese for her drink recommendation. Couldn't do without that. And lots of good vibes, of course, are due to the podcast supporters on Patreon, who include the following nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Dan Barrow, Matt Bell, Kevin Burt, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Helen Fay, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Jesper Cumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Marek Kraus, Ian Morris, Yusef Murra, Amy Parkinson, Murray Meikle, Kevin Murray, Karen Neal, James Newell, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slatome, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and William Wilkstrom. If you'd like to support the XTC podcast, you'd be very well advised to do so, and we're very grateful for it. And you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. I'll see you all next time. What do you call that noise? Head to xtclimelight.com where you can buy my two XTC books. First, there's the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls, which is an anthology of Limelight, the XTC fanzine I made from 1982 to 1992. We had a couple of lifelines to the world, and, and Limelight was one of them. So the book is the XTC Bumper Book of Fun for Boys and Girls. It's stunning. Thank you, Ian Lee. And then there's What Do You Call That Noise, an XTC discovery book, where you'll find more from the band, plus commentary from musicians, including Anton Barbo. For me, it's just simply a life-changing song. And McHugh. It's like a painting by Van Gogh. Jason Faulkner. XTC probably made the most impact on me of, of any band that I can think of. Chris Butler. If there's anything more classic XTC, e, 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 e. this is it. And Rick Buckler. It was well produced as well. It had the support of a great producer. I mean, it really sounded strong. Order your copies of both books at xtclimelight.com. It's a paper and ink net. The internet with, with added staples.